Congress wades into the pistol brace ban battle, plus a conversation with Kai Klepfer, founder of BioFire, which is releasing the world's first smart gun. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no hold on me. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski, also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and Sign up for our free weekly newsletter right now. If you haven't already done so, you'll get access to a roundup of all the most important gun news in the country every Friday morning for free. So uh, make sure you check that out today. You can also, of course, buy a membership to support the reporting you do here and additionally get access to hundreds of pieces of exclusive content that you will not find anywhere else. This week, we are talking about smart guns. Uh, with somebody who knows quite a bit about them. We have uh, Kai Klopfer, who is the founder of BioFire, which happens to be, as far as I can tell, the first um, practical smart gun company that is actually going to be bringing a gun to market that you could actually go and pay for at least the uh, reservation today, and which I believe you guys plan to start shipping the end of this year. Is that right? That's right. And uh, thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah, welcome to the show. We appreciate you coming on to talk with us, answer some questions, because uh, there's going to be a lot of questions. I know you've, you've uh, done, have been answering, I'm sure, these kinds of questions for a lot of outlets, but I appreciate you coming on and, and joining us. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your background to start off with? Yeah, so as I said, Kai Klepfer, I'm the uh, founder and CEO here at BioFire. I've been working on the concept of a, a smart gun, basically a firearm that's always locked by default, unlocks automatically when you pick it up. Uh, you can use it just like any other handgun if you're the owner or something you owner's chosen to allow access. And then most importantly, locks as soon as you let go. I've been working on uh, sort of engineering projects and, and concepts around that technology for actually about 11 years now. I started working on it as a, a high school student. I was a sophomore year of high school here in Colorado, uh, right around the Aurora Theater shooting, which started prompting me of thinking, how could I apply technology to guns and, and start working on this space? Quickly settled on this concept of a smart gun that wouldn't address mass shootings, but could have a lot of impact on children who get access to firearms in homes, uh, teenage suicide, firearms that are being taken away from, from the owner by an assailant. Uh, worked on that as a while for a, like as a science fair project and then an independent research project. Spent some time at MIT uh, working on a double major in uh, EECS and uh, management before taking a Teal Fellowship, this program where Peter Teal pays you $100,000 to drop out of college, which is a great deal. Highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> and uh, basically use that money to help start the company. Uh, dropped out of, uh, in 2018. And we've been hard at work ever since to uh, build the world's, as you said, first practical production smart gun. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I've seen, you know, obviously there's been a couple of videos out there uh, already that have um, had people handling the gun, firing the gun. There's a couple of news reports. I think ABC, Bloomberg did poor reports. Yep. Ian McCollum, who's been on the show yep. several times, has a video where he shot the gun as well and did a partial disassembly. Yep. Um, so there's there's a little more that people can go and check out if they want to see the gun firing and exactly how it works. But um, yeah, we'll this go. is kind of the the what people have been thinking about in sort of sci-fi for a while now. This is something you see in. You know, there was a Bond movie where he had yep. a smart gun. I always say was, I'm definitely not the first person to think about it. You know, James Bond has had one for 25 years, so we're just right. trying to catch up. Right. And um, uh, I think 
Dread had yep. maybe a more Dread. extreme version of yep. where yep. it would blow up if you the wrong person used yep. it. But, yeah, we don't. That feature is um, not part of this model. Um, but yes. yeah, <laughs> yes, that's good. But uh, but this one is effectively a uh, a biometric yep. uh, locking gun. It's a sort of a, there's a biometric um, lock that's integrated into the firearm uh, that's combined with sort of uh, infrared. Um, uh, or you can describe it better than me, but uh, a camera system that also reads your face sort of like an yep. iPhone would um, to make sure that the person using the gun is the authorized user, right? Yeah, I've actually got one of our uh, pre-production units here with me today. So Great. I can sort of, if it's helpful, just talk through the basic concept yeah. of like how the firearm operates. Um, yeah, and the, you know, our YouTube viewers can actually see it as well. Yeah. So that'd be great. Well, perfect. Well, I'll try to hold it in front of my face the entire time. Um, so <laughs> you'll see here uh, full-size semi-automatic striker-fired handgun chambered in 9mm. So uh, any sort of standard, you know, FMJ, hollow point, uh, I, I don't... Uh, I don't warrant the performance of shitty reloads, but in any sort of normal uh, high quality ammo in nine millimeters should work great, just like you would any other firearm. One of the key things that we really care about with building a smart gun is we want the experience and the, the usability of the firearm to remain the same as any other polymer frame striker fired handgun, right? If you have trained on a Glock 19, a SIG P320, uh, the controls, the way you interact with it, the malfunction drills, like all the sort of stuff that you'd see on a traditional firearm is equally applicable to a smart gun. And in fact, like once you have the initial setup, you know, onboarding process done, you really can truly just pick it up like you would any other firearm and use it would like you would any other firearm. The difference is by default, like if I'm just holding this here, you know, uh, like improperly by the front of the gun, um, this is locked and unusable, right? So if I were to pull the trigger, uh, the, the gun would not fire even if there was a round chamber. And you'll notice basically, if I sort of show the back here, uh, there's a there's an indicator on the back as well as an, an active illuminated front sight. Those are always off by default, right? And as soon as I start to interact with it, you'll see that they turn white. The white color basically means that it's looking for my biometrics. Um, as you said, we've got both a fingerprint sensor that's set into the grip here, basically underneath the middle finger of your dominant hand, as well as a uh, 3D facial recognition system, as you said, that uses infrared uh, here on the back. The way that we have that set up is either the fingerprint or the facial recognition can be used to unlock the gun. And as soon as you pick it up, they both start running in parallel anytime you see that white light, trying to recognize your fingerprint in your face. And if it identifies the fingerprint or a face of either the owner or someone that the owner has locked in and chosen to enroll into the firearm, then the gun unlocks. And I'll show you what that looks like here. Uh, average latency is uh, well under a second. Um, and so basically as fast as you could possibly pick the firearm up, uh, it'll be unlocked and, and ready for use. You'll see those green lights as well as a visible laser by default that's here on my hand. Um, the green lights and the visible laser are indications that the firearm is armed, it's unlocked, it's ready to use. And while you're in that state, again, functions just like any other firearm, you have around the chamber, pull the trigger, gun goes boom. Um, I think a couple things to note about that, there's no like timeout or delay or anything like that. The gun will stay unlocked and armed for as long as you're holding on to it. And you can, you know, manipulate your grip. Uh, you know, I've got an empty magazine in here. So if I, let's say I want to shift my grip a little bit to hit the magazine catch um, and then, you know, pull the magazine out, the gun would stay unlocked and armed the entire time I did that, right? You can basically hand anything that involves you maintaining control of the firearm with your primary hand, it will stay unlocked and armed the entire time. Similarly, the moment it leaves your control within a fraction of a second, it's locked and, dis and disabled. And so you'll see here, if I basically just like pretend to kind of rip this out of my hand, 
the moment that leaves my control, it's locked. Um, and I know I'm just, you know, for the video viewers, I'm just showing some lights turning on and off here since, you know, we're obviously not in a live fire environment in this conference room. Um, but because of BioFire's electronic fire control system, which is basically the world's first ever fire by wire handgun, uh, that means that the system is legitimately armed and able to fire slightly before those lights turn green and disarm slightly before the lights turn off. And so that's a true indication of the actual status of the product. So that's the okay. really quick summary of how it works. There's lots more to go into, but that's that's the basic. Yes, and we'll we'll definitely get into a lot more, of course. Um, but uh, th yeah, that, I mean that's pretty radically different, I would say, from a lot of the other smart gun proposals that have been out there, the prototypes that we've seen, which generally work by uh, having some sort of electronic safety interruption system, like something that maybe disconnects the trigger from the sear yep. or blocks the firing pin from. Uh, from protruding or something along those lines until you use uh, either an RFID chip like a, like you have in your credit card um, or uh, fingerprint reader or, or you know something along those lines and which are still sort of at their very base the same mechanical device as, a, as any other firearm your design is really pretty radically different from that right correct yeah and so what you're talking about is what I would classify as like an inhibition-based approach, right? So basically you're taking a traditional mechanical gun, you got a trigger, like in a striker-fired architecture, you got a trigger, you got a trigger bar, you got a sear, sear drops, striker springs forward, hits the back of the round, gun goes off. Um, and you basically do something to prevent that from working in some way, right? You, you put a pin through the trigger bar, you disconnect it, you, you do something like that that basically is a kind of a mecha little mechanical, electromechanical lock inside of the gun. Um, we started there, right? And so like back in 2018, when we were iterating on different prototypes and like we were iterating on prototypes that were based on like Glock architectures and SIG architectures and other sorts of things like that, um, looking at like, hey, what would like a retrofit kit or some device that would attach to an existing firearm? The only way to do that is via an inhibition approach, right? You, you take a normal gun because you're trying to base it on a normal gun and then you have to prevent it from working. There's a bunch of challenges that we encountered with that that eventually, you know, I've already spoiled the punchline, but eventually led us to choose to spend the engineering dollars and the time to develop something that's much, much more novel um, because the inhibition-based system just didn't fundamentally, I think, meet the needs of our customers. And in particular, there's two primary things that matter for a smart gun. The first one is reliability, right? That is the fundamental, most important, like key thing between what I think a viable smart gun looks like and what a non-viable smart gun would look like. Especially like for our use case, and I should have maybe said this at the beginning, we're, de we're designing what we hope to be the world's best home defense handgun. Right. And so we've very narrowly focused on that particular use case, uh, the requirements, the form factors, the calibers, the um, power you know, situations, all sorts of things like that, that would make sense in a home defense use case. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why we've chosen that that I'm happy to talk to later. But uh, it's allowed us to uh, make decisions that optimize for that use case in that environment. Um, you know, you're like, just like almost any other, you know, use case for a firearm outside of maybe sporting goods uh, and shooting sports, you're, you're trusting your life to that firearm and you're trusting your life to that firearm, probably in an unpredictable defensive situation in the middle of the night when you're barely awake um, and probably reasonably undertrained. At least I feel like I would be undertrained in that environment. Um, and so with that, it has to work, right? It needs to unlock every time you pick it up. It needs to have at least as good of a like mechanical malfunction performance as a traditional gun. We're hoping to do better for what's worth, but like we at least will need to meet the you know the Glocks and the Sigs of the world. Um, and uh, it needs to also give you the confidence that it's always going to be locked. Should your kid find it, or should an assailant take it away from you? So like reliability to me is like the number one most important thing 
to produce a smart gun that gun owners actually want, right? That would actually be a viable choice when you're thinking about a home defense weapon. The second one, which is less important, but still very important, is speed, right? What's the latency? How fast is it? Um, does it introduce any additional roadblocks, delays? Even if those are perfectly reliable, you don't want to compromise experience and you don't want to add anything else you need to think about, again, especially if you just woke up in the middle of the night. And so we found that these inhibition-based approaches uh, were unable to satisfy those requirements, right? Trying to integrate electromechanically with a little motor or, or something like that to an existing you know, mechanical architecture that was never designed to be integrated with like that. And then combined with um, the speed of, you know, sure, you, as you notice, like there's a full-size platform. We have taken up the space that you'd normally have a Pictini rail for electronics. Um, we'll talk about how we're solving that later. Um, but it's still a pretty, you know, a bulky platform. And we've done, believe me, we've done a lot of work to streamline it even to the point we're at here. Um, that's because we're super space constrained, right? And fitting actuators, fitting other electronics inside of that can be really challenging. So punchline is that inhibition-based approaches, I think, are not capable of delivering the reliability required to do this and the speed required to do this. Biofire's electronic fire control system, um, which we have like multiple patents granted on, it's been a huge focus for us to develop. And this is the first time that we've built technology, like the technology like this has ever been built in a handgun, uh, is fundamentally solves those problems, right? It's, uh, it arms and disarms within literal microseconds, right? Not milliseconds, microseconds, which is insanely fast. And it um, is not only more reliable than an electromechanical lock, it actually allows us to improve the reliability of the entire firearm because we have less mechanical fire control components that you know can get fouled, need cleaning, wear out, and we replace them with solitaire electronics that never need to be maintained. So anyway, I'm talking a lot. I'll, I'll switch back and let you ask questions. But <laughs> no, it's all it's, it's, it's all very good. interesting. Yeah, uh, and I think I think you're doing a pretty good job of giving us your your mindset on how you approach developing this firearm because it is something that is wholly unique. I'm I'm not aware of uh, any. I mean, there may be some military firearms. Um, like big naval battleship guns and things like that, like really big weapon platforms can use technology yeah. like this, but nothing on the small arm side. Yeah, I've never seen anything where it's a fire-by-wire system. In other words, where the trigger is not mechanically attached to the sear that drops the the, um, the striker block for the, the firing pin to actually yep. co contact the, the primer on a round. Now, that you didn't go... Um, I mean, so it's a lot of development that you're clearly doing here with this firearm, um, although you didn't uh, didn't necessarily go beyond. It still uses regular ammunition that yes. you put through any firearm. Yep. Um, I know there was there was uh, Remington had a, a electronic primer system years ago that didn't work, yep. or not that it didn't work, but it it didn't uh, take off. It didn't wasn't adopted widely. Um, but you haven't gone on that. Right? You're keeping the basic mechanics of how a, a round actually goes off. The same. What you're changing here is the firing mechanism to something that. It's never been done in the market before, right? That's correct. Yeah. And it's really, we, the most important part of our process, in my opinion, is a really close relationship with our customers and discussion with our customers. And so over the course of the company uh, and over the course of our development, we've talked to over 10,000 potential customers, uh, done user research. We've given them prototypes. We've brought them in to simulate threat environments. We've done surveys. Um, and we do that both with entry-level first-time gun buyers, right, including a lot of folks that have never shot before participating in our research. Uh, we have an expert advisory board that's all the way to the other end of the spectrum, and it's all SOCOM, Navy SEALs, like folks that have been professionally trained to use firearms for, for many, many years. Um, and the goal is to like take all this cutting-edge technology and really simplify it down into an experience that's very straightforward. We found that ammunition in particular was one that uh, the vast, vast majority of people that are using handguns for home defense use 9mm. Um, and 
It's a very well understood caliber. It's one that's just only gotten better in the last 20 years. And going in and turning this into some sort of model where there's a proprietary ammunition that you need to buy from us, it makes it a lot more challenging, right? It makes it harder to adopt. Mm. It makes it more expensive. I guarantee right. you we would not be able to produce some sort of novel ammunition for anywhere near the price you can go buy nine millimeter, even post COVID prices. Um, and uh, I think that was one of the problems with the Etronics right. system. Yeah, and, and there, it's new novel technology, but it's new novel technology for consumable. Like obviously our, our base product here is a premium product, right? We're charging fourteen ninety nine on our website right now, asking for one hundred fifty dollars, one hundred forty nine dollars deposit, um, right. but. That's a, you know, that's a one-time purchase, right? And that's something where you can invest into that and then you'll have a great high quality product as opposed to adding, you know, doubling the cost of maybe every single round that you shoot, that really adds up over time. Hmm. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the customer base that you're you're pursuing with this product because, you know, when I talk about smart guns with people, one thing that I like to bring up is uh, the Series 80 1911, right? I, you know, the, the 1911 has obviously been around for over a hundred years. That's where the, the number comes from the year it was patented by John Browning. And um, so it's a very old trusted design. Um, in the 1980s, though, I believe it was Colt, came up with a uh, a new safety mechanism for the 1911 to try and address, I believe it was like drop firing issues. And it added four metal pieces, small little metal pieces, mechanical design, not very complicated. Um, but it's something that, uh, a large percentage of enthusiasts, at least, uh, don't like. Uh, now, obviously, Series 80 1911s are generally still popular. People do buy them. Uh, I believe that my 1911 in the background here, it's the Remington. I think that's a Series 80, if I remember correctly. Um, but there, there is a whole group of gun owners who are very resistant to anything that could potentially damage the fireability or reliability of their firearms, especially the firearms they keep for home defense. And as you've said, this is a gun that you're intending for home defense. So how, you know, how do you approach that, um, that factor when you're trying to sell these guns? Totally. I think that's a great question. Um, I sort of have three answers to these. And so since I'm already a little long-winded, I'll, I'll give you the short versions. Um, I think the first and most important uh, point to make here is this we view as a choice, right? And it's a choice uh, that we want to have as an option available on the market, right? And it's obviously one that we hope to convince many people to choose to purchase over other competitive firearms, but it has to be a choice. And, and we'll probably get into later, like how we're yes. approaching we mandates definitely and things like that. Yeah. But um, the the goal is, you know, we, we've, we've done a lot of work to ensure that this remains a choice uh, and it's something that people can choose to purchase. And the reason for that is um, not everybody is going to want or need a smart gun. And that's great, right? Like there's mm -hmm. a lot of folks who are very comfortable about how their current home defense firearms are stored, who can have access to them, what that threat profile looks like. And they've made the risk assessment decision that, you know, they feel that the concentrating the risk in, in access, you know, unintended access is a better decision than concentrating the risk in, you know, maybe some perceived potential for failure of the technology or a new product to understand or something like that. That's great. That's their choice to make, right? That's what the point of the Second Amendment is people get to make their own choice about how they carry firearms in the United States. Um, I would say that being said, in the customers we've talked to, and I, we've also seen this from like a, a broader perspective um, from like national tracking polls and things like that, like the number one concern of consumer handgun buyers generally is that the firearm is going to be used in some way that they don't intend. And, and what that means varies a lot, right? So like for novice users, it's almost always, hey, I'm really concerned about what happens if my kid gets a hold of it, or I'm really concerned about what happens if I forget to put it in my gun safe, which for what's worth statistically are valid things that they should probably be concerned about. Um, 
And then on the more enthusiast side or expert side or folks that have a lot of experience, you know, it tends to be more around like, hey, I know how challenging it is to maintain control of a firearm in a close quarters environment, and my house is a really close quarters environment. Um, and so the peace of mind of knowing that it's going to be locked in a fraction of a second if I'm disarmed, like that's really the key part for me. Um, but either way, like the with the fundamental value prop, the reason why you would choose to purchase a smart gun against more complicated, more expensive product is because the sophisticated technology that's built into it, which again, is all technology that's familiar in other walks of life. We've just uh, done the work to make it reliable and robust in this application, right? This is not a smartphone. It's a smart gun, right? Very, very different. Um, but the, there's a lot of value that technology can bring. And in particular, it's the only way that you can solve for that, hey, we can guarantee that the firearm is going to be unusable when it leaves your control, right? No gun safe, no trigger lock, nothing actually solves that problem because all of them require re-securing the firearm. And most of them, by the way, are much, much, much slower to access uh, than our product. Like we've done a couple of good comparison videos that are on our website of like, you know, a biometric gun safe or like a trigger lock or all those sort of different ways that people who aren't leaving them just totally unsecured, secure the firearms. And the smart gun is, is in most cases, orders of magnitude faster no, uh, than anything else. Yeah, you know, when I the other point that I tend to make beyond the Series 80 uh, example is that to me, when I look at what you're doing with this gun, you're basically, um, I mean, it's a little, it's a little bit more than this, but uh, the, from the practical end, you're kind of in, integrating uh, what, a biometric safe into the gun. Sure. And uh, there are a lot of people who buy biometric safes, right? right? So there's, there are, there are issues like, uh, you know, is anyone who has a phone that's used a um, fingerprint reader yep. over the last 15 years or however long it's been that that yep. started, um, you know, if, if your finger's too wet, yep. you can't use it if you don't, if you have a glove on. Now, obviously, you guys also have the face ID system. Yep. And this is why. Um, as a backup. Right. Yeah. And like that. Um, Sorry, but to me, to me, like uh, the, there must, it seems like there's clearly a market if somebody's I don't see much of a difference between buying a biometric safe to put your Glock in and buying a biofire gun, which is just a biometric safety integrated into a, a gun. Now, there are, uh, you mentioned some of these things. It's it's pretty big as it stands now. It sort of reminds me of the uh, Silencer Co's gun where they have the integrated um, yep. suppressor. Not quite that big, but, but same same category. Right. Not quite as big, but similar profile. Yep. Um, but, you know, it's a little bit bulky in the first generation here. Maybe not as big of a concern for a home defense firearm, yep. but um, but it is bigger than like a Glock. It's obviously much more expensive. Um, I, it's probably more expensive than even a Glock and a biometric safe, um, but it's a first generation product. I suppose that's part of it. Yep. You're, you're sort of developing this technology. I assume this is not going to be, your plan is not that this will be the only version that exists. It's just the first version. Yeah, we've gotten lots of requests on other kinds of whether it's mm -hmm. a concealed carry version or shotgun and rifles or things like that. Yeah. But is that who you're targeting? Like somebody who would buy a biometric safe might buy a biofire gun instead? Is that your thought? Potentially. I, I think when we think about like what customers are we looking for, um, we focus a lot more on how are they using the gun, right? Because there's a lot of different, again, looking at like we have thousands of pre-orders over the last couple of weeks since we uh, launched the, launch the product. And you know, we've again as we've done a lot of work to reach out to those customers and ask them like hey like why'd you buy our product like like what is exciting about this or if you know somebody created an account and chose not to buy it, it's like yeah we'll give you 25 dollars to tell us why you didn't buy it right like and walk us through the process and you know because we again it's all about learning from our customer um but we've we've heard from you know we again we have folks that are like legitimate 
SEAL Team 6 guys that have purchased this product. And we have people that are like, yeah, I've never owned a gun before. I've been wanting to buy one for a while. And, you know, I like this is this is how I'm going to feel comfortable about having a gun in my home is because I, you know, I'm just really concerned about my kids getting a hold of it. And this is going to give me confidence that that's not going to be an issue and, and everything in between. Right. And so it's less about like the specifics of like what kind of gun owner are you or like, but more about like it is almost always people are buying guns for home defense. And going back to something you said previously, the not only is it like, uh, yes, it's it's definitely bulkier. And part of that is due to a first generation product, but portions of it is actually because we can make the product better and more reliable by making it bigger. Um, and as long as we're willing to say, hey, this is going to be designed for home defense. Um, most, almost every other firearm on the market is trying to address multiple use cases. Like even a full site Block 19, sure, people buy that for home defense, but people also use it as a duty weapon, right? Which like carrying it even open, you know, open, carry like an out, you know, outside the waistband holster or something like that. Like, you know, you're a police officer, you're carrying a Glock around all day. Like you care a lot about how big it is and how much it weighs, um, even if it's not concealed. And so with our product, by, by saying we have, this is an error, and, and you're welcome, if you can buy a handgun in your jurisdiction, you're welcome to buy our product for whatever you think is appropriate to use it for. But by designing it for home defense, you know, you'll notice uh, kind of, if you look at the profile of the gun here, you'll see we've got some stuff sticking out, right? There's so this fingerprint sensor sticks out a little bit here. These uh, like we call naseals for the laser and some of the electronics stick out here. Those are all things that would make it more challenging to holster. It provides snag risks for clothing if you're drawing from concealed. Um, they're all things that I would never incorporate into a product designed for concealed carry. For home defense, it substantially improves the ergonomics of the product. It means we can serve a wider range of hand sizes and hand geometry. People have thicker fingers, things like that. And they're going to more reliably hit the fingerprint sensor each time they pick it up. And then the additional mass up here, like we have to have a battery somewhere in the system. We can talk about battery life and things like that in a second, but um, we have to have a battery somewhere in the system. We chose to put it here because putting it up underneath the barrel, basically, uh, you know, where you'd normally have a rail mounted flashlight or something like that means that you get less muzzle rise on each shot. It's easier to control. And, you know, we've, again, we've had folks come in, you know, short, short engagement distances, but we've had people come in who have never shot a handgun before in their life. And, you know, they can shoot a three inch group at 10 yards. Um, and that's because like the system is, it's big, it's heavy, uh, comparatively, you know, to a little like six, three, six, five, right. 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 Um, interesting. So, uh, that, that actually, uh, brings up another question. So one of the other companies that's exists out there in this space is called smart guns. I think they may have rebranded, but they were at shot show a couple of years ago. I interviewed, um, one of the, one of the people involved in that project and they were targeting duty guns, like um, prisoner, tra prisoner transport, uh, officers, people like that, who may have their guns, you know, people try to take their yeah. guns away from them. Uh, is that another aspect that you're trying, like, obviously you're saying this is for home defense. Have you, do you have a model that's, uh, do you think, well, one, do you think this model is ideal for the sort of police officers, you know, out on patrol or in specific situations and, or two, do you, are you planning to develop uh, one specific for that purpose? Great question. So this product is designed for consumers and for home defense. Um, we are not intending to sell this particular product to uh, what we call like professional users. So law enforcement, uh, you know, military security, um, you know, corrections officers, folks like that who are carrying firearms professionally. Um, that being said, uh, both before we launched and especially since we've become, you know, kind of come out of stealth mode and, and launched our product and talk about what we're working on in the last couple of weeks here, we've gotten a lot of requests and a lot of inbound interest from uh many of the major police departments throughout the country, uh, a number of different federal agencies, like there's a, there's a lot of interest in this technology for basically the same reasons why consumers might care about it, which is officer takeaways, right? Losing control of that firearm is like an existential threat that is at the center of the vast majority of, of like professional firearms training, at least with at least with sidearms. It's a little different for like military rifle applications, but for like a sidearm, if you're a law enforcement officer, you know, 
on your, you know, on your patrol or, or in close quarters with a suspect, uh, the number one thing you're thinking about, and again, I'm not a law enforcement officer, this is just what I've heard from, from a lot of different cops I've talked to. The number one thing you're thinking about is like, is the perp going for my gun? Um, and that is like super important because the last thing you'd want is to go from the officer being armed to the criminal being armed. And if we could shift that dynamic, not only does it make our police officers safer, but it starts to allow us to take a little bit of a more, uh, it allows officers to make slower decisions in certain cases and not have to make a really snap decision about employing lethal, lethal force. Because right now, if you're at risk of losing control of the firearm, you should employ lethal force to make sure that doesn't happen. And that is appropriate, reasonable training uh, when, you know, when applied appropriately. But we can start to shift that in a way that a lot of law enforcement departments and a lot of law enforcement officers are are really looking for. Um, and so anyway, punchline is this product is not designed for for uh, commercial and professional customers. It's designed for consumers. A big reason for that, as a note, is the way that we think about enrollment um, and users uh, is via this smart dock. So this comes with every system. It's part of the 1499. Um, this basically serves as a, it's a five inch touchscreen interface and it serves as a way for you to interact with and configure the firearm. Um, you can have up to five active users in the gun at any time, but all of the biometric data, everything about the product is stored encrypted within the firearm, right? So nobody, not even BioFire, can ever access it. Uh, the only way to add and remove a user or even see who's enrolled is if the owner logs into the gun with their biometrics at that moment in time. Um, that makes a lot of sense for consumers, right? Because it protects privacy. It ensures that, it, that it's very, very clear who has control of the firearm and who can make decisions about how that firearm is being used. You can imagine why in maybe a police context, that particular dynamic wouldn't make as much sense, right? Having one particular officer where, you know, if that person quits, like right now we can't use any of the firearms anymore, like certain aspects of that don't make as much sense. Um, so it would need a bit of a different approach, but I think a similar kind of technology is something that we've gotten a lot of requests for. Okay. And uh, just two questions off of this. The other struggle I would imagine is battery life. This is, you're uh, designing this to be at home in a dock where it's charging yep. uh, instead of being carried around on the person. What is the battery life? And then two, that dock, uh, from what I can tell from from uh, seeing videos of, of its use, it appears to be based on in Android, which obviously has security vulnerabilities. How do you protect uh, people who own this gun from any sort of hacking attack or, or, or anything like that? Totally. So two questions there. On the first one, battery life, uh, you'll get months of battery life off of a single charge, um, depending on exactly how you're using it. So we our, our kind of average use case is you're mostly leaving it sitting in a drawer, and then you take it to the range like every other weekend, you shoot 50 or 100 rounds, something like that, you'll get months of battery life, depending on exactly the temperature of your house and things like that. Um, the intent with that is you shouldn't ever have to think about battery life. Like, in, in again, for the use case we're designing for home defense, including home defense includes a gun at your cabin, right, in the middle of the woods, right, with inconsistent power from a generator, right? Like, it doesn't mean that you live in the middle of a city with perfect, you know, perfect power. Um, but any version of home defense, you shouldn't ever have to think about battery life. Like, we expect the vast majority of our customers will never see a low battery indicator. They will never get a low battery alarm. Like they, they basically probably can forget it even has a battery. Like we don't, it was very, very important to us to not build a smartphone or like an Apple watch or something where it's really easy to forget to charge or, or make a mistake. And you know, you forget to plug it in one night and your phone doesn't work the next day. Maybe that's fine for a cell phone, but like doesn't work for a smart gun. Um, and so we've done a lot of pretty hard engineering work, especially on the electrical engineering side to really optimize our power consumption to get a lot of battery life off of a very small battery. Um, as you made the point, this is designed for home defense and most of our customers have told us that they're gonna leave it connected to the dock um, during uh, most of the time. And so what that means is you get months of battery life after you remove it from the dock, because um, it only takes about 30 minutes to fully charge the battery. Um, and so 
basically you should never have to think about it. Uh, for a professional product, yeah, there would have to be a different power model, a different concept probably, um, just to ensure similarly that like uh, a police user would never have to worry about their battery dying. Um, does that make sense? When, it, when the guy, yeah, that, that makes sense for the battery side. Um, I mean, it kind of sounds a lot like, um, like red dots, yes. you know, red dots, which people do put on their carry guns and carry around and, and um, you know, they put their life uh, on the line with a red dot is similar idea. They have months of uh, battery life, maybe longer in some of the better ones, but, um, uh, but yes, the, the dock, uh, my understanding is that there is an internet connection with the dock, not with the gun. Right. Um, uh, so how do you, how, how are you preparing to ensure that, you know, the dock doesn't get hacked, that yep. there's no, you know, people are going to have that concern when you're talking right. about an electronic gun, that the, yeah. where the firing system is electronic, it's yep. not mechanical. Yep. You know, how do, how do you, how are you guys handling that? Great question. So there's been a couple, uh, I think we've heard very clearly from our customers, and it's also, I think, sort of just obvious that security and privacy, which go hand in hand, um, are, are super important here, right? Nobody wants a smart gun that could be like, you know, disabled remotely by some adversary, or, you know, that is like collecting and leaking a bunch of data on the user, right? Those are super important to avoid and to design. Or against. even the government, right? That's right. a, that's a exactly. common concern. I said, I said guns. adversary, and you can interpret that in any way you like. Um, <laughs> sure. And so the... Um, uh, I think there's a couple key decisions and design decisions that we've made that help uh, largely mitigate this concern. The first one is, as you said, the gun has no connectivity, wireless connectivity of any kind. There's no Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, GPS, IoT, you know, RFID, anything like that. There's no antenna of any kind in the product. Um, we encourage people to take them apart and verify that. There's no possible way they could ever connect anything wirelessly ever. Hard stuff. Um, the only way to communicate with the gun is through a hardened USB port on the front. I'm going to point the gun right at the camera, so my apologies, but you'll basically see uh, right here, there's that USB-C port that's protected back inside of the trigger guard. That is the only way to interface with the firearm. Um, even when there's communication stuff happening internally, all of it's encrypted, all of it's protected using credentials that nobody, not even BioFire, has access to. Um, it's very, very secure. Uh, and we've worked with some of the best folks in the industry who are in charge of major cybersecurity programs for major defense weapon systems um, to design that cybersecurity approach. The dock, um, as you said, has optional Wi-Fi. Um, and basically what that means is it has the capability to connect your Wi-Fi, it has a Wi-Fi antenna in it. Um, it's off by default. And so when you first set it up, it walks you through an onboarding process. And one of the questions it asks you is, do you want to connect this to your home Wi-Fi? And if you say no, great, you'll have a great experience. You'll get every single feature we could possibly deliver without Wi-Fi, which is 99% of them. Um, and you'll have a great experience and you never need to talk to us ever again, right? You don't need to talk to BioFire or connect to the internet to add a user, to factory reset it, to sell it to somebody else. It's entirely under the control of the owner. It's entirely local on the device. Um, there are certain features that we've gotten a lot of customer requests for. Uh, the most obvious one of which is people want a notification on their phone if the gun has been touched or removed, sort of like your smart home security system or something like that, um, you know, they want that push notification of like, even if the gun's on, even if the gun's unusable, they still want to know, hey, my kid was playing with my gun while I was at work or whatever it is. Um, that is just simply not a feature we can deliver without some kind of connectivity, right? It's just, that's the way it works. Um, and so that we've tried to basically straddle the balance of for users that are interested in the convenience and the features that we can provide only with connectivity, great, they're welcome to opt into that. If not, they don't need to. To directly address your security question, the dock and the gun do not trust each other. In particular, the gun does not trust the dock. Um, and the dock, this is a little bit hard, I think, to see from the outside, but the dock doesn't actually control the state of the gun in any way. Um, it's basically just a human interface device is what I call it from an engineering perspective. And what that means is it's a fancy keyboard, mouse, and screen um, is 
kind of how you could think about it. And so it has the ability to request things of the gun. For example, it could say, hey, I would like to get a list of the users, or I would like to add a new user named Bob, who's going to be active for the next hour. Like it can input requests to the gun. None of that data is ever processed or handled or accepted or, or, or actioned upon until the gun has independently verified that that's a valid request that it wants to do. And the primary way it does that is via requesting confirmation directly from the gun owner. And so, for example, if I were to walk through the process to add a user, the first step would be the gun owner would need to present their biometrics to the gun, not the dock, to even authorize the release of any of the information that the dock would then be displaying, like a list of users. And then to add a user, they would need to confirm their biometrics. The, the new user would enroll their biometrics into the gun, not the dock. There's no biometric data ever transferred to the dock. And then at the end of the process, the user, the owner, would then again need to confirm their biometrics to say, yes, I actually want to save this user. And there's particular reasons why we do each of those steps that I'm happy to talk about. So what that means is no sensitive information, like biometric data, uh, that we have the gun has to store to be able to provide the functionality that we're advertising. Um, one, we never store actual pictures of your face or fingerprints. It's mathematical hashes, representations that can't be converted back into an image. And then even that data never leaves a secure encrypted process inside of the gun that, as I said previously, nobody, not even BioFire, has access to the encryption credentials required to access that. Um, additionally, as you said, the doc does run a custom version of Android. Um, it runs the, we run Android 13, which is the latest and greatest, uh, you know, fully updated with all the security patches, et cetera. Um, I guarantee the vast majority of devices in your home that are running Android are running Android 6 or something like that, which tends to be horrifically insecure. That's not the approach we're taking. Like this is, this should be. Are you going to continue to issue security updates as well for we the doc? Yep. Okay. Yeah. We intend to issue full security updates. Uh, we have a bug bounty program uh, that is uh, going to be launched here in the next couple of months uh, as people have units available for testing and security research. Uh, we will pay you very, very handsomely if you can figure out a way to compromise the integrity of the dock or the gun. Um, and then I'm sure people will try. <laughs> yeah, and that's the intent. Like we want to incentivize, like people are going to yes. try regardless, but we want to incentivize right. people to tell us so that we can quickly fix it for our customers. And like that obviously that was one of the big things with, um, was it Arm Armex, I believe was the company Armitex, that had one yeah. Armitex years ago. And um, there was a hackathon and they figured out that you could bypass the the lock with, with some neodymium magnets Obviously, again, back going back to the core of the design of your gun, that's not possible because of the fire-by-wire system. Um, but I don't have you forever, so I want to move okay. on a little bit here. I think you gave a, a pretty thorough answer there on, on uh, the security side. Uh, I'm sure there will be more questions, and perhaps we can have you on again to when we're close, when you're closer to the launch date, when some of these guns start getting out into people's hands. But um, I want to talk a little bit about the political side because that's super important as well, right? The One of the big reasons that people have been skeptical beyond the stuff we've talked about here with security and reliability uh, of smart guns is the political aspect. The, the fact that, you know, New Jersey uh, for a long time had a mandate that as soon as a gun like this became uh, available for sale, that that was the only kind of gun that could be sold in the state. They have since changed this law. They've, um, they've repealed it to uh, it, it still has a requirement that gun stores will have to sell, I guess, your gun um, alongside of we, all we, the other guns. We don't guns. tend to be complying with that requirement, for what's worth, but, but yes, there is, there may be right. requirements. Right, but that, uh, I, I understand that's not, you weren't, BioFire was involved in any of this lawmaking process and didn't exist at the time these laws were made. But, um, but you know, this, this is part of the concern that people worry that once a gun like yours comes onto the market, it's going to incentivize a lot of um, uh, lawmakers who don't like guns uh, to try and 
ban all of the other guns in favor of uh, this design that they, you know, and so, uh, I mean, you know, one, we'll just start off there. You have been very publicly saying that you, BioFire is opposed to these sorts of mandates, correct? Absolutely. And that's been, you can look back when I was talking about this as a literal child when I was 16, and you'll hear the same thing. Like that's been a core part of our strategy and our approach to the space. It, it has to be a choice, right? And like, there's a lot, like we, again, we think we're building the best home defense handgun, but we've chosen to focus on specific use cases, a specific price point, a specific feature set. And if that speaks to you, great. But there's a lots of reasons why it might not. And you, you need to be able to maintain that choice to purchase other products that are going to be a better fit for you and for your use case. Hmm. And uh, to this end, you guys have now also become involved in a lawsuit, uh, not not in the sense that you're plaintiffs or, or uh, anything like that, but you have filed a what's called an amicus letter, which is where you've written to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, who is hearing a case called uh, Bowen v. Bonta uh, out of California, which deals with California's handgun roster. It's so-called Unsafe Handgun Act, where the state requires any new model of handguns sold since 2013 to include um, a loaded chamber indicator, uh, a magazine uh, disconnect safety, and then a technology called micro stamping, which um, is theoretical, doesn't actually exist in, in production anywhere yet. And which means that for the last decade or so, there haven't been new pistol models added to what Californians can legally buy. Uh, now, police are exempt from this for some reason that doesn't that sort of contradicts a lot of the basic idea of a, that these guns are supposedly unsafe. Um, but you guys have filed uh, this this letter in support of the plaintiff. So you want this law to be struck down, correct? Can you explain that? Totally. Yeah. So we, we recently filed, as you said, an amicus letter in Bolivia Vanta, uh, taking the, the plaintiff's arguments. Um, the, our objective here is, you know, we believe that the UHA um, is arbitrarily restricting innovation and is not achieving the stated objective of making Californians safer. Like you mentioned, the police exemption, um, but more broadly, you know, our, our goal is safety, right? And I think, uh, you know, saying that somebody told me recently, California is to guns as Cuba is to cars, right? And I, I don't know what you want to say about car safety, but I'm pretty sure the ones in Cuba are not quite as safe as the ones you can buy in the U.S. Um, and I think that's been true, right? Like, you know, whether it's like big, flashy stuff like what BioFire is doing, which obviously we're, we're taking what we believe some very bold steps towards, a uh, very different safety paradigm around how firearms are operated. But there's been lots of work from the other manufacturers in the space over the last 20 years on how to improve drop safeties, how to like look at trigger safeties in a slightly different way. Uh, there's been a lot of work on that and none of those are available to Californians. And so the argument that we're taking is, you know, we think that, you know, one, the UHA restricts choice, right? And in particular, any provisions around removing existing firearms from the roster when new ones are added or things like that, um, you know, would, would arbitrarily restrict the choice of Californians to choose firearms that are appropriate for their situation, just like, as I was saying previously, and in more broadly, like it would not allow, you know, products like biofires to potentially be available for sale uh, in the state of California. And right now, like California is our largest market, right? More people from California than any other state in the country have pre-ordered a biofire smart gun. And I think like, obviously it would be very silly for us to go to market and deliver a product in 49 states and you know maybe even the District of Columbia in certain cases, uh, and then you know not have that be available in California. And so the, our argument basically is regulation of specific technical features, especially ones like microstamping that are unproven and have never been produced in a production product is contrary to the stated objectives and is not like a way to actually increase safety. Hmm. Okay. And uh, now this, this law has been uh, preliminary 
preliminary, sorry, preliminarily enjoined. It's a hard word to say. I tried not uh, to get it. By, by a federal judge there. And California has appealed this, but they haven't requ- they've requested a stay for the loaded chamber indicator and the magazine safety, um, the magazine disconnect safety, uh, but not for micro stamping. Um, are you guys, do you have a California compliant version of this gun that's going to be able, that you're going to be able to sell while the, you know, if the micro stamping um, requirement goes away? We do. Um, and so we've done the work on our side. Uh, obviously, like there are other firearms available for sale in California that comply with the lower tra- low chamber indicator and the magazine mm-hmm. disconnect, right? Those are features that have been produced in production products. And that's a very different, I, I still personally don't really think that it adds a lot of safety and are largely just arbitrary costs imposed by this regu- regulation. But unlike microstamping, where this is a novel technology, we would need to do research and development and validation around the microstamp, sorry, the magazine disconnect and low chamber indicator are like understood how you implement those. And so we intend to have like our, our California version of the product uh, will have those two features in it, just the same way that there's other states that have requirements on, uh, you know, the material the frames are made out of, or the weight of the trigger poles, or things like that. They're sometimes a little bit arbitrary and silly, but like you know, we we, we can comply with those reasonably, and so we chose to do so, so we can serve those customers. Yeah. Okay, but obviously the concern, presumably going forward, is that if this uh, if this case loses, if the and I believe this is a California Rifle and Pistol Association case. Uh, YouTube Arena May is involved in it as well. But uh, if that loses, the micro stamping requirement comes back and then you you can't sell any guns, uh, any of your guns, at least in, in California. There's a they grandfathered in the ones that were developed before 2013, but uh, even if they don't necessarily have the other safety requirements. Um, but uh, speaking of the, the you know, uh, trigger pull weight and all this. We've spent a lot of time here talking about this unique system you devised with the fire by wire uh, aspects and how you're using that or how you're protecting against unreliability or uh, hacking of it for you know malicious purposes. I, you know, I'm also interested in this as a novel technology, as, as a unique new concept uh, on the in the other direction. I mean, this sort of opens up a lot of possibilities. I don't think that many people have talked about because a fire by wire system allows you to set the trigger weight and adjust it easily, uh, whatever you want, presumably, um, uh, you know, and uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on that and how you expect um, to see that uh, developed down the line. You know, is there going to be a way to change the weight of the trigger pull when these guns get into people's hands uh, from, you know, as, as a, a feature that you offer? It's a great question. Um, we don't have that uh, the basically trigger weight adjustment in the base model right now. We, we actually prototyped a variety of different systems for that and never found one that met our standards from like a reliability perspective and from a how it impacts the overall sort of feel of the trigger, like the take up, how crisp is the break, like what does the follow through look like? What does the reset look like? There's a lot of, there's actually a lot of dynamics to what a high quality trigger feels like. Um, like I, I'm not going to claim I'm any good, but I, I shoot precision rifle and like you know, the difference between like a match grade trigger and a good trigger and a bad trigger is very obvious to anybody that's like, you know, shot a couple. Um, and uh, I think the the goal is like, we want to provide the most consistent experience we can and introducing that variability to the trigger weight uh, compromised that. And so we chose to back off of it as a first version. That being okay. said, the, the intent here is, you know, we're very focused, especially for now, as like we're coming to market, starting to explain what our product is, how we're approaching this. Like the core thing we're doing is the biometrics, it's the safety, it's the stuff we've been talking about. But at the end of the day, 
you know, what we're, what BioFire actually is, is we're a team of engineers, right? Mostly from aerospace and defense um, who have come together to work on firearms and how can we make, you know, better, safer, more modern firearms and including exploring things that are pretty far outside of the box of the area that existing fire manufacturers have been innovating in, right? There's obviously, I'm not saying there hasn't been any innovation, there has, but it's been in a pretty limited mechanical sphere, right? Versus BioFire, we have the capability, we have the team, we have the engineers to both uh, do the research and development as well as the manufacturing of much more multidisciplinary systems that include software, they include hardware, and there's a lot more we can do with that. And so I think areas that I'm excited about are, you know, be able to provide coaching and training feedback to the user based on the sensor data that the firearm is processing in real time. Um, another one that we are really interested in is we've got monitoring systems that are built inside of the firearm um, that we're using to make sure it's always staying reliable and to detect any issues maybe before they come up. Again, just to get that extra little bit of reliability. We also can use those same systems to monitor the mechanical performance, right? So we can see every single time that the gun shoots exactly how many milliseconds it takes for the slide to go from the beginning of battery to the end of the stop and back into battery. We can see the clicks of the different little mechanical systems that are in there moving around. Um, and you can start to see like, hey, the slide is starting to slow down by a few milliseconds, which probably means it's got some fouling on it or it needs to be relubricated. Or, you know, we're seeing like the, uh, an additional delay in the timing between these two components and start to provide feedback to the user, again, all via the interface in the dock that is much more detailed and, and honestly earlier than even your most experienced user would be able to understand and feel that from a human reaction time perspective. So I, I won't go into too much more detail. There's more on our website, <laughs> lots of videos stuff about this, but I, our goal is like, how can we provide the best experience possible? And that is most importantly, how can we provide the best experience possible when you need to pick that firearm up in the middle of the night um, and make sure it works? But it also, in practice, 99% of the time people use guns is at the shooting range, right? It's, it's not in an actual defense environment. And so as long as we've solved and we have confidence that we've solved the core use case, anything we can do to make your overall ownership experience better, whether that's providing easy access to replacement parts, you know, service manuals, like there's a lot that we hope to do to make this like a really enjoyable ownership experience for all sorts of different kinds of gun owners. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, obviously, I think for the first run for this first prototype uh, gun, or not even prototype anymore, first production gun, uh, you want to make sure that you're getting that reliability and security aspects down 100%. But, you know, the, there does seem to be with this unique system that you've developed, a lot of uh, possibilities for that would excite more experienced shooters um, and, and, uh, and hobbyists down the, you know, that, that are potentials down the line. Like, I mean, it's kind of, you kind of described like a Mantis X being integrated into the gun, um, you know, being able to adjust the, the weight of your trigger on the fly or have a different profile or have a different amount of take up compared to the break, you know, just highly customizing the way the trigger works because it's not actually mechanically connected to the sear and so you can do a lot more with that totally um i mean there's a lot of interesting stuff in there or yeah like you mentioned the the gun telling you what when it needs to be cleaned or you know giving you sort of a, a continuum of how uh how you've performed and how the gun itself is performing that's all extremely interesting i know it's not in necessarily all that is necessarily in this uh, a lot of model that's coming out but a lot of it will okay. be. Like, the way we've designed this is, um, again, focus has been first and foremost on uh, safety and security, right? Those are the two key pieces. This is like why somebody right. buy our product. But what we've done, we've built all the hardware in, not the trigger brake adjustment piece, but pretty much everything else you just talked about. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the hardware, the sensors required to run that, the processing power required to run that, it's in the gut. It's in this prototype I'm holding right here. Um, and 
what that means is, you know, as like we expect to actually probably have a lot of those features that I just talked about available at product, like when people start taking delivery later this year. Um, mm. But if we don't, like over time, uh, there are optional software updates available. And just like our approach on the internet so you side. you can do over the air updates, kind of like a, yep. a Tesla approach, I guess, where yes. Tesla will launch cars that have the hardware required for, uh, you know, what they call full self-driving and you have to yeah. buy to, you know, to pay them yeah. to upgrade it to get the software. But, but you know, it sounds like a similar kind of concept where yeah. you can, you have a lot of the things you'd need for some of the stuff we just talked about, right. but, um, you know, and maybe you're, you buy a gun at launch, but six months down the line, it's got new features. Right. Is the and we're, exactly. And we're, we're hoping your experience is going to only get better over time. Not like most, which like sort of degrade and make it worse. Like how can we make your experience like incrementally better, you know, over the time that you own the firearm and like on software updates, the way that we handle that is if you've chosen to connect the dock to the internet, then it'll download the dock automatically. But just like everything else, no gun, no no software update can be applied to the gun without the owner saying, yes, I want to apply the software update. So nothing ever gets mm -hmm. automatically updated or anything like that. And then if you don't connect the gun, the dock to the uh, internet, we also provide an option for you to go to your computer to download the the, uh, the software update that's applicable for your gun, like uh, manually to like a flash drive, plug the flash drive into the dock and then update it via that way. And so mm -hmm. you, again, so you, just as I said before, you can get the full experience about the internet piece, but still benefit from you know the latest features, the latest updates, everything like that. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is not something that's a new concept in terms of consumer devices, but new for it's never been done in firearms. Um, and so I think what you're doing here is obviously very unique. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to try out the guns uh, yeah. sometime down the line here, but... Uh, and, and I'm interested to see what other people are going to do with them, especially, you know, Ian and maybe some of the, yeah. uh, you know, the, the 3D printed gun people, defense yep. distributed, those, that kind of community, how they work with this firearm as well, I think will be very interesting. But Likewise. we really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I think we'll probably have opportunities and reasons to bring you back on in the future if you're willing to do that. So, um, you know, for now, though, if people want to find out more about BioFire, more about what you're doing, uh, check out the gun and and what we weren't able to talk about on on this episode. Where can they do that? Yeah, we've got a ton of content, everything like that at smartgun.com. Um, so all videos, tutorials, all sorts of uh, articles that have been written about the product. And then obviously, if you're interested in saving your spot in line, uh, we are doing those $149 refundable deposits. Basically, you just save your spot in line, a particular manufacturing batch, first come, first serve. So for folks that are interested in being among the first to own uh, again, we've already sold out of our first couple uh, couple batches of, of orders. And so definitely, uh, it, again, smartgun.com, that's, uh, that's where pretty much all the information we have has been all collected. All right, great. Well, thanks for joining us. We're going to head on over to our news update now. Thanks for having me, Stephen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back for the news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Stephen Gatowski. How are you doing this week, Steve? I'm doing all right. How are you? Doing pretty well. I uh, can't complain. I just had to uh, fix um, our website because uh, when you run your own tech stack, it's uh, you're the one who does all the customer service and backend work in addition to writing the news. But um, we got it fixed. There was a issue where it wouldn't link to the checkout page, which is pretty bad when you have a, a website that relies on membership dues. So if people can't buy memberships, that's not a good thing for you. It's certainly not ideal. Yeah. It's a business tip for everyone out there. Um, <laughs> but we got it fixed. So that's thank thankful for that. Um, but yes, it's been a little bit of a stressful morning. 
Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, you have an update for us on your uh, concealed carry journey, right? If you want to tell us yeah. what, what happened. It's not a good update either, though. Uh-oh. <laughs> so More bad news. Bad news. <laughs> just all bad news, uh, this, this news segment. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, my concealed carry appointment. <laughs> so my appointment to dr- drop off my application, right, uh, in D.C., DC makes you make an appointment to drop off your application, not to pick it up, not to do an interview or anything. You're just going there to, to drop off your application. Uh, if you don't, if you haven't already been fingerprinted, you would get, you could get fingerprinted there. Although states that do fingerprinting for concealed carry, a lot of them will let you uh, do that on your own time at, you know, a company that offers fingerprinting um, or, you know, there's a lot of government forms or, yeah, whatever that require you to get fingerprints. And usually there's a, a fairly simple process for that. But uh, anyway, my appointment, which I had made three months ago, was coming up yesterday. And um, unfortunately for me, uh, you have to have a valid concealed carry license in your home state in order to get a non-resident license in DC, uh, which is not an uncommon thing necessarily, but, um, and of course I've had a Virginia concealed carry license for, uh, probably like 10 years now. Unfortunately, that means because they're five years at a time, you have to, I had to renew mine. And when I sent my renewal in, uh, it turns out that I, I didn't fill out the section where it, you're supposed to list if you have like scars or tattoos because I don't have any like identifying scars or tattoos, whatever that means. Um, I guess if you had a big scar on your face, uh, you, you'd have to write that in the like tiny little section that they give you. <laughs> but uh, so they returned that to me. I got it back. They, they mailed it back to me uh, like a week or two later, which means that I haven't gotten my renewal yet. So I don't have my updated permit uh, for Virginia. So if I had gone into DC, my understanding at least is that they would have just, I'm, I'm guessing said, come back when you have the updated Virginia permit. And so I figured, well, there's no point in going through all that just to be told to come back later. So I, I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll have to make a new appointment. Uh, do you want to guess how long Oh new, boy. <laughs> how far away my new appointment is? In DC, two months. I'll say two months. Yeah, it's September. Yeah. Oh, so, geez. yeah, two, three months, I guess. Three months, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, that's great. Yeah, it's been a fun experience. I don't have my Virginia renewed per- permit yet. I, To be fair, I should have sent that in. I think they say 45 days. I should have sent it in even earlier, um, I guess, because like, you know how it is dealing with the government. Yeah. Um, it should, it doesn't even need to be this way, right? There's no point in the, this whole renewal process, frankly, like what, what it, they don't have to show them that I've done any sort of new training in Virginia. I okay. have because I did the DC class, but it's not a requirement to get renewed. So it's kind of just paperwork for the sake of paperwork here. Uh, Cause they could subject you to a background check if they wanted to at any time. I mean, I go through right. them every time I buy a gun anyway. 
Um, so that, that you know why we have to go through a, a process where we have to mail in st- stuff and get it back. And I, I know other states are even worse, but like it's sh- why 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 don't they just automatically renew it? this? Because then they'll miss out on those, well beyond the sweet sweet renewal care. fees. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. It's, I think it's like $45. Right, I'll pay yeah, the renewal fee. I don't care. Yeah. If they just want to charge me a random fee for, uh, I mean, it seems like a huge waste of time for me and for the staff at the courthouse, right? There's nothing has changed since I got my permit f- renewed five years ago. Um, I live in the same place. All my details are the same. Uh, why do I even need to go through this process? If you want to do a background check on me, like, go ahead, do it. Some states recheck all of their permittees every month. That's right. actually, uh, for some of the, the data nerds out there, that's why we don't use the raw NICS numbers, the National Institute of Criminal Background Check System numbers, uh, as like an indicator for gun sales. Because the problem with that is some states like Illinois, for instance, recheck all of their permit holders uh, every single month, and not just concealed carry holders, but also uh, in Illinois, they have the FOID card, firearm owner identification. So they're rechecking hundreds of thousands of people every month, which drives up their raw NICS check numbers, uh, which makes the total number completely uh, inaccurate for gauging gun sales. Um, now, we go by the analysis that's out there from like the, the industry, the National Shooting Sports Foundation does an analysis. The FBI codes their NICS checks. So you can tell which ones are re- permit related and which ones are sales related to some degree. Um, there's still a little bit of finesse in there because some states will allow you to to bypass a NICS check um, and, and it'll come up as a permit check if you have a concealed carry permit. So there's a little bit of, uh, it takes a little bit of analysis to get to the number that is more accurate, but, but yeah, that's why we don't use the raw numbers because some states will just recheck every single permit holder that they have every single month. And, um, I don't know why Virginia does this instead where it's like, okay, every five months or five years, we're going to have you go through this process again for no good reason. Um, and if you don't fill out the, if you don't write none on the identifying scars or tattoos line, we're going to send the, the whole thing back to you and you'll have to resubmit it again. And then you're going to miss your deadline for your DC application and have to push that out three months. It's, it's a whole thing. It's all just a big runaround. But the fact that that's even a, a criteria on the form is is bewildering to me because that's definitely not a thing here in Colorado. I, I've never had to no. <laughs> write tattoos or scars or anything on my concealed carry form. So it's um, just funny how yeah, unique each state is and, and the different processes that they <laughs> make everyone go through just to get a permit. Yeah, you know, it's 2023. Why isn't this an online process? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. what am I still doing I got to go to the UPS store. I don't even have a printer. Who has printers? Right. right. Maybe I should, but I don't. So I have to go pay the UPS store 50 cents to print out a piece of paper. And and then I got to fill it out, go to the post office like it's 1973 and mail <laughs> this stuff in so that someone there can manually look over it and then say, wait a second, you didn't write none. <laughs> it's like if I didn't write anything there, isn't that... I mean, 
why would I write anything? I don't have any. Um, but hey, <clears throat> I'm sure somewhere in the instruction sheet that's three pages long, there's some sentence that tells me I should have written it there. And look, and look, hey, they at least they <laughs> at least they sent it back and said what was wrong with it, so I could just fill it out and resend it to them. That's true. Um, uh, you know, I, that's more than I'd expect from most government offices. So I guess that's the the upside here, the positive thing. Uh, but yeah, so another three months before I get to submit my application in DC. Um, <laughs> so who knows when I'll actually get a permit. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to continue this saga. So this will be a continuing thing for at least another several months here uh, for people who enjoy these little personal updates. Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, it's things are going great. It's yeah. It's, it's a good. It's a good morning. <laughs> the life of dealing with concealed carry bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how that all works. And I also have to get. Of course, DC still has magazine limit, and they have a weird rule. Although Heller, from the famous um, Supreme Court case, did get them to rescind this this part of this rule a while back where you ha you could only carry a certain n number of magazines was a rule for a while, even if they were, you know, um, there are certain, certain numbers, like you could only carry two full magazines. Didn't matter what size the magazines were. So they had like weird arbitrary rule like that as well, but either way they do have the 10, 10 round limit. So I'll have to find, Oh, I think there's conversion kits for the 10 round, uh, 365 magazines to make it fit the X macro. So I'll probably have to pay $5,000 a pair for, for those things. <laughs> for custom magazines, <laughs> custom SIG magazines. Oh yeah. my gosh. So we'll see, but I guess I have a very long time to figure all that. That's out. right. You've this got all point. the time in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway, what, what do we have in terms of news this week? Sure. Yeah. So for the quick updates, uh, I had a story about arms list. Um, we've covered this, uh, you know, arms list, the online firearms marketplace we've covered, they get sued all the time. Uh, they're a constant target for liability suits. And we have a new development where the seventh circuit court of appeals just dismissed a pair of lawsuits that were consolidated into one case. And it was a, a similar story where folks that uh, families of victims of, of gun violence who had been killed, with firearms that were obtained via private party sales on arms list and uh, prohibited possessors ended up taking possession of those firearms to commit crimes. They sued arms list, um, accusing them of being negligent and aiding and abetting illegal firearm sales by not requiring background checks or, or stepping into third party transactions, essentially. And the judges said, you know, that's not going to fly. That's not arms list's job to do that. Um, was, this happened to be in Wisconsin, so they were going off Wisconsin law. And they essentially said, you know, Wisconsin doesn't require that. So you can't hold arms list uh, liable for that. Right. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, obviously, uh, facilitating a sale with somebody who's a, a criminal is that doesn't, uh, I'm sure, make arms list look very good. But uh, right. on the other hand, um, yeah, arms list is just a listing marketplace. It's just people can buy ads there basically to sell their firearms which is, uh, it's not arms list responsibility to, they're, they're not vetting everyone who sells on the site, uh, or, you know, that they aren't a gun dealer. They're a mark, they're a, like an advertising post, basically very right. similar to Craigslist. 
Yep. And you can probably tell from the name, it's the exact same idea. Um, but, uh, you know, so on, but on the other hand, it's, it seems like the plaintiffs want them to just be gun dealers. Yeah. Right? So a lot of the criteria they were asking for was one background checks two they wanted some sort of vetting of the, you know, identify positively identifying folks that are engaged in the transaction. And then three, they right. accused them of not doing waiting periods or ensuring that waiting periods were followed, which are not required even under Wisconsin law. So yeah, that's the other thing about most of these suits is like they're the, the things that they it's like on the one hand. OK, I'm sure a lot of people would be would be like, yeah, it's bad that uh, Arms List hosted this ad that turned out to be um wasn't wasn't the seller also a prohibited person somebody who couldn't own guns is that so not in, in one of the transactions it was actually two people that were not prohibited but the person that purchased the firearm then kicked it into the criminal black market where it was then obtained oh. by a felon uh to Wait. murder a police officer and then the so other the first case one, the, the, the actual sale through arms list didn't have anything to do with it was, right yeah you could make a case maybe it was a straw yeah. buy since they since they kicked it into the criminal black market, but no, there was the, the two parties that actually engaged in the transaction were not prohibited as far as we know. Okay. And, and then the, the other case, one? yeah, the other case, it was a guy that, uh, an estranged ex-husband, I think there was a restraining order. And so he was tech, uh, under that restraining order prohibited from possessing firearms, but obviously in a private party transaction, he didn't declare that. And, uh, right. but the, the person that sold know. it. Yeah. As far as we okay. know, the seller was not, so these you are know, things actually. that would be hard to suss out anyway, uh, right. without, um, you know, that the sellers didn't necessarily know that these guns were going to end up being used in, you know, they didn't have an indication that that was the case, but either way, you, that's where, you know, uh, arguments about whether, how, how arms lists can verify or try to weed out the, the bad actors from its services. That's probably stuff that I think a lot of people on the surface seem seems more reasonable. But then when you get into the details of a lot of these lawsuits, what they're what they're saying is like, oh, they're unreasonable because they didn't have a they don't institute a waiting period or they don't um, you know re require background checks. Which is like, one, there's no waiting period in Wisconsin for any gun sales. Um, so what you're asking doesn't make any sense at all uh, in that in that context. Uh, and then two, or you're, you're basically just asking for, you're, you're saying Wisconsin should have a waiting period. It doesn't have one. And then two, like you're, you're asking them to do background checks that they can't do. Like the arms list isn't an NFFL. It's not a gun dealer. Right. They don't have access to the national criminal background check system. Uh, right. And so uh, the things they want them to do are basically, so you're saying they should just become a gun dealer is a totally different business from what they're doing, right? They're, they're an ad marketplace and they don't, they don't take possession of the firearms. They don't do anything with the right. guns other than host advertising on that. Someone is selling it privately. Um, they, they don't take possession of the firearm at any point or anything like that. Um, so it doesn't really, they're just selling them. They should go into a completely different line of business basically. And, uh, and then on top of that, that they should do, they should impose their own private waiting period, I guess, um, even though the state doesn't require it. So, you know, they, st they started at a level where it's like people agree that uh, a site like Arms List or any of these online marketplaces 
should have some level of scrutiny for trying to weed out bad bad apples from people who post on there right like i'm sure a lot of people would think that like if they if they can figure you know if they can tell that somebody is not allowed to buy a gun or sell a gun they should not let them advertise that you know if they have they should have it'd be uh good to have policies that try to prevent that from taking place right that's a fairly reasonable position but then most of these lawsuits go four or five steps beyond that and that's where they start to get in trouble i mean obviously legally they don't have any real footing right um, and we see this all the time you've covered it a lot where these cases uh, they get hyped a lot in media coverage right um mexico sued a bunch of gun companies right claiming that american gun companies are responsible for mexican gun crime um really since the since the Sandy Hook settlement, which again wasn't was a settlement, not a court ruling, um, there really haven't been any successes in this area, right? Yeah, no, not that I'm aware of. They all eventually either you know will say if it's a state case, they'll say it's preempted by the Federal Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, or in a case like this when they're just dealing with Wisconsin state law, they just landed on the rationale like look, basically what you just spelled out. Arms List is not a firearms dealer, therefore they're not required and are obligated to follow what we, you know, put what regulations we put on FFLs. And so there's no case here. And so they, they almost all uniformly get kicked, you know, out of court yeah. eventually. Yeah. They keep racking up L's on this front. Um, and it doesn't, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, even with, uh, and now this is another thing we've covered. Obviously there's been state actors who've tried to add credibility to these lawsuits by passing their own liability laws within within their own within their own states right like new york right. has done that uh, but i it's unlikely that i think those are going to survive either um but you know we'll obviously continue to cover it maybe things will change who knows that's right it's certainly an ongoing trend um but speaking of ongoing trends we have a, another quick news update from our other steven that's reporting for us uh he wrote about the texas legislature passed a uh one of these prohibiting uh, MCC codes for credit card companies, which is a special identifying code or theoretically a special identifying code for gun sales. Um, and Governor Greg Abbott just signed that into law. So Texas has now become the latest red state to crack down on the practice, which is something we've covered, you know, for a while now. Yeah. And the largest one, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Florida did it. So there's another, another big red state in there too, but Texas is obviously the second largest state in the country. So when they do something they usually become the largest, especially right. if it's a program thing, because California being the largest state is likely not going to adopt a law like this. In fact, I think that uh, Governor Newsom had talked about adopting a law the exact opposite of this, where they were going to try to require credit card companies to adopt uh, this specialized MCC, you know, merchant category code for uh, gun retailers. That's right. Yeah, they actually just so the day after we published our piece, they substituted language in a completely unrelated bill that had nothing to do with this. They just struck the gutted it completely and then put that language in there. So that's it's in the California Senate right now. It hasn't moved really yet. So we don't know where that's going to go. But they, they are trying to do that, trying to mandate the use of those yeah. codes. It'd be interesting to see how credit card companies respond if they're mandated in one state to use this code and banned from using it in a bunch of other right. states. I, uh, yeah, polarization's doing us doing great things for us. But <laughs> either way, uh, yeah, this is an you know obviously MCC codes exist. 
they're you there's thousands of them right they're used to categorize all kinds of retailers uh, they're basically what is behind credit card rewards right and, you know if you if you buy if you get a airline credit card you get miles for buying from airlines well they're using the mcc code to tell that that's what that's where you're buying stuff right and so that that was the basic idea this was pitched in uh, i think 2018 by the New York Times or a New York Times uh, columnist that, hey, why don't we make an MCC code for gun stores? And then that way we can track uh, what people are buying there and then develop some sort of um, AI super algorithm that will tell, that'll flag suspicious buying patterns at gun stores. They, they really know, there's never been an explanation for exactly what would constitute a suspicious buying pattern? You know, basically the, the New York Times piece was just, hey, some of these mass shooters use credit cards to buy their guns. Um, and therefore, you know, um, maybe we can come up with a mass shooter profile, purchasing profile, and then flag that for the police. Uh, the idea is similar to like fraud flagging. You know, there's there's patterns that can emerge um in purchasing, I mean, you see this, right? When, when, when your credit card gets locked temporarily because you, you're on a trip in another state and they're like, Hey, this is different from where you normally buy stuff. Did somebody steal your credit card? Um, <clears throat> it's sort of the same concept, but not very well flushed out. I've never seen anyone try to explain what the pattern is specifically, there didn't seem to be, other than that some of these shooters like the Vegas shooter and the Parkland shooter used credit cards to buy some guns. Um, and I think uh, the time period was something that they were focused on. Like some of these people buy their guns in um, relative quick succession before buying, before carrying out their attack. Although that's, but the problem is that's not always true. Right. And and also, I mean, there's a million problems with this, but uh, chief among them is this idea that there is some sort of mass shooter buying pattern. And I don't think that's been established. Every serious scholar that's researched mass shootings, um, including both uh, the Violence Project and uh, James Allen Fox from Northwestern University, uh, some of the people we've had on this podcast in the past and the FBI as well says there's no specific profile for a mass shooter. It's not how it works. And I think that's even more true for mass shooter gun purchases because, okay. Um, the Parkland shooter bought a couple of guns. He bought like two or three guns. The Vegas shooter bought like dozens of firearms and he bought them over years. Uh, like there's no pattern there. Um, and I haven't seen anyone articulate, even the guy who came up with this concept or amalgam amalgamated bank, it's a hard one to say, amalgamated bank, which is uh, this bank that does a lot of financial work for the Democratic Party and a lot of liberal groups. It's sort of like an activist bank. They're the ones who proposed the idea of creating this code to the international body that governs MCC codes. You know, they're, they haven't articulated how this would lead to any sort of useful flagging of purchases anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, either way, it's certainly, 
it's something that has animated a lot of the gun industry and gun rights activists. And the result of that is these new laws banning the use of specialized MCCs because they're still MCCs, right? For gun stores. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's specifically, they want to create a unique code that, as you said, right. in some theoretical way might be used to identify quote unquote suspicious purchases. So, and, and to be fair, the industry itself, the big, we've reported on the big major credit card companies have one poured cold water on the idea that they could be used to track quote unquote suspicious, bleh, suspicious yeah. purchases, but they've also paused even implementing these codes as a result of some of these red states, you know, getting involved in the legal space. Um, so it yeah. remains to be seen. With Although, them. you know, they were going to implement it. So that's right. It's not, right. it's not as though these laws are totally frivolous or anything, right? This was, this was something, uh, I, you know, I know I'm talking about how this is not a practical concept because one of the issues is MCC codes don't actually tell your credit card company what you bought. They just tell them where you spent money. There's a category code, right? So it's telling them what category of product you're buying. So that's why your airline miles cards will work at airlines. Um, and you could probably buy food from your plane and it count towards your, your uh, points or what have you. That's why they're usually pretty generic in, in those rewards cards. Um, but uh, yeah, so this, you, a $5,000 gun safe purchase would look the same as five $1,000 gun purchases or 10 $500 gun purchases at a gun store under an MCC code. It doesn't tell them what's actually being purchased. So that's another problem with this idea of tracking some sort of suspicious buying pattern to flag people as potential mass shooters because they bought a gun. Um, you know, uh, or they bought something at Bud's gun shop or wherever else. And um, yeah, so, you know, at the same time, uh, with all the, at the same time that these practical issues with this idea exist, it was something that the credit card companies were going to do, right? They all, they were all going to do it. And then um, I think really Florida, to be honest, uh, was the one that spooked them out of doing it. Uh, because they were they were one of the first to put in place one of these bans, and so now, you know, you're seeing it in a lot of other states as well. Yeah, but we'll uh, we'll certainly keep everyone updated as more states do this, or if you know we see an equal and opposite reaction from a state like California. Uh, so we'll stay yeah. stay tuned on that. But last thing we want to cover today before we wrap up is uh, an update on the pistol brace ban saga in the House of Representatives. So Congress has officially acted and you reported on that if you want to tell us what happened there. Yeah. So the House of Representatives passed a uh, Congressional Review Act resolution to undo the ATF's pistol brace ban by a vote of uh, 219 to 210. So it's fairly close, but they got it across the line. They had there were two Democrats on board and two Republicans who voted against it. Um, so it's mostly party line. You had a little bit of crossover. Now it heads to the Senate. And I think one thing, there's two things here, right? One, it's actually probably going to get further than you might expect, right? The Senate is controlled by Democrats, right? There's a 51-49 Democratic majority at the moment, which you, which generally means that most of the stuff that House of Representatives, which is controlled by Republicans, passes doesn't go anywhere. 
you know, in terms of legislation. It has no chance of ever even making it to the floor. The, this does, though. This has this will get a vote, an up and down vote. There won't be any amendments to it. Um, there won't be any way to stop it from getting a vote because of the way this resolution works. Uh, this because it's a Congressional Review Act resolution, which is which allows Congress basically to go through and look at any rule that was passed recently by a federal agency and uh, if they want to overturn that rule. Because remember, federal agencies in the rulemaking process, what they're doing is interpreting and implementing laws passed by Congress. So if they do something, if a federal agency creates a rule that Congress thinks Hey, this isn't what we meant, and this this doesn't fit with what we what we said. And when we pass this law, um, they can naturally, you know, Congress can go in and say, you know, overturn this. <laughs> this is not right. right. This is not the proper interpretation of of uh, the law we created. And uh, so that makes sense. And so those are privileged motions. So they will get a vote, and I think there's a pretty good chance that it'll that it'll pass the Senate too. Uh, you know, you need 51 votes. You just need a simple majority. Um, there are 47 Republicans already either sponsoring or co-sponsoring this bill. So the only two left out are Murkowski and Collins. Romney is a co-sponsor uh, for people looking at the sort of swing vote types. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've reached out to them. They haven't responded. Um, and then, of course, you have your typical swing votes on the other side, especially on gun issues in Manchin, uh, who, by the way, did respond and said that he's still looking at the resolution and hasn't made up his mind. Uh, then you have Tester and you have King from uh, Maine and you have um, Cinema from Arizona. So those are the four you'd probably go after. Uh, if you're looking to try and get this across the line. And, I, you know, I think probably could get two of those four. And I think Collins and Murkowski are going to come around. I mean, there's a pretty significant impact of this rule, right? It affects millions of gun owners right. in, a, in a negative way. So, and many of them, as we've reported, have refused to comply with this regulation. So they're they're sitting under a cloud of potential federal felony charges, right? Right. And so uh, I, I don't think it would be too unrealistic to see this getting to 51. There have already been five other CRA resolutions that have made it through the Senate. Um, so it's not a, it's not an, it's not a, a, a wild possibility that they'll get through uh, on this one too. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good point. I was going to bring that up as well. Like for example, the gas stove, CRA mm -hmm. that they got through and Manchin was very willing to go up against his own party on that and, and yep. join with the Republican side on that issue. So it's not it's totally not out of the question to see the same on this pistol brace rule, considering the, a lot of these guys represent very red states, very pro gun yep. states. So it's it's quite possible. However, Biden has already said that he's going to veto it, which is, of course, yes. the likely outcome. Uh, but you wrote kind of a an analysis piece on this issue where it's this was never going to be undone by a resolution because of that fact, but it's one, it's still interesting to see folks on the record voting on this. Mm -hmm. um, and two, I think it just sends a message. Uh, it won't, even though it, it's sort of a quixotic, you know, 
project, it's it still sends a message. So that's interesting. Yeah, certainly th that's the big hang up is that this can still be vetoed, right? Yeah. Uh, and it will be vetoed. Biden has already said he's going to veto it. Um, and you you need two thirds of both houses, which you're not going to get right. in either house, frankly, uh, because the almost perfect 50-50 breakdown of each house, you're not going to get to two thirds. You need a lot of Democrats at that point. And this is not something that's going to get a lot of Democrats on board. It's something that you'll get a couple of Democrats probably uh, to go for. So um, that's where the, it ends on the political side, the congressional action. That's that's as far as you can expect it to get. It's still, as you mentioned there, a meaningful political tool to have the president forced to veto something that obtained support from moderate Democrats. Right. That That is still a meaningful um, political move. It doesn't help you practically, but the good right. news on the practical side is that the court cases against the pistol brace ban are going very well, right? There's four injunctions issued, all of them in the fifth circuit, but they protect at least three of the major gun rights groups at this point, the second Amendment foundation, the firearms policy coalition, gun owners of America, and all of their members, which is likely in the millions as far as, um, how many people are actually protected by these injunctions. And you've got the National Rifle Association and um, the National Association for Gun Rights, both trying to intervene in those cases to get their members protected as well, which would add millions more people to that, uh, to that injunction. And is probably going to happen. I would think is you saw this in the, um, the ghost gun case where, where once an injunction was issued against that, rule uh, a number of other companies filed to intervene defense distributed polymer 80 and they were that was granted so uh, you know they're basically suffering the same exact injury as the other gun rights groups so i don't see any reason why it wouldn't uh, get extended to those those groups who who by the way weren't involved in these official cases because they have other cases going on right the the nra has a case in the eighth circuit um Plus, you're probably going to see a ruling on the merits very soon. They've got an expedited schedule for the Fifth Circuit Appeals panel that's considering this case. And hearings, oral arguments are going to start uh, before the end of the month. So you're likely to see a ruling on the merits very soon in that case. So, you know, it's yes, it's uh, it's don't expect that this Congressional Review Act resolution is going to make it into effect. But that one, that doesn't mean it was pointless. And two, the other avenue for gun rights advocates to get rid of the pistol brace ban is looking pretty positive at this point. Uh, if if you're if that's if that's the outcome that you want, you're probably fairly happy right now. Anyway, so we'll keep following that one too, of course. And you know, it's still a question whether it's going to get to fifty-one. I think it probably will. But we'll have to we'll have to see. And, and obviously, you got to head over to reload.com and sign up for our free newsletter if you want to follow along with it as well. Buy a membership if you want to read our exclusive analysis, uh, the full piece to get the, the breadth of what we're talking about here. And uh, and also to get this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. Uh, if you if you want to do that, just reply to your member exclusive Sunday newsletter 
which is another perk of membership, and let me know, and we'll have you on. We got one scheduled uh, this month coming up fairly soon, so I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, that's all we have for you right now, and we will be back again real soon.